This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome everybody into the first Salt City Hoop show of 2015. Yay! <laughs> we're, we're in a new year. I actually have a beef to pick with 2015, and that is that it Already? is an odd year, not an even year. Ah. Even years are the best years for sports fans, and that is because the Olympics occur, the World Cup occurs, the FIBA World Cup, the Giants win the World Series, the Spurs win the World Series, sorry, the, the NBA Finals in only odd years, it seems, except for last year notwithstanding. Um, anyway, the coolest sports things happen in even years, and unfortunately, this is not one of them. But despite that, 2015 will be an excellent year. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of SaltCityHoops.com. We are the ESPN Troop affiliate of the Utah Jazz. Ben Dowsett is on the other side of the table, um, and we're here to talk Utah Jazz and NBA basketball. So welcome in. We're going to have a great show tonight. Uh, we've got Nate Duncan of Basketball Insiders joining us in the 8 o'clock hour, so tune in for that. Um, Nate's a fantastic guest, and we'll share his insight from around the league as well as the Utah Jazz. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we've got Dennis Lindsay, an interview with him coming up. It's not live, unfortunately. I'm sorry. But we're going to be playing an interview Deceptive, that we did with Andy. him. Deceptive, Andy. As always, I like to fool our audience, uh, making, making them think we're big time. But regardless, uh, and, and then the biggest piece of news in Jazzland is, quite frankly, the Jazz are a good team. They are. They're seven and four over the last eleven games. This uh, this is recently, at least, a very okay. Very good is a bit of an overstatement. A good basketball NBA basketball team. The clearest thing, I mean, the clearest point of view of this is that the Jazz won ninety seven seventy seven last night against Chicago in Chicago. Against you know one of the elite teams of the East and, I don't full, think and any full strength at full strength, it is good times. I think this is the best win that the Jazz have had in two seasons. Do you disagree? The the Memphis win from earlier no, this year is one I would. That's put, a six point win. I was just gonna say I put it close. Not that I put it above it. I would just kind of put it close. But yes, I top to bottom, I would probably say this is the best win. at least this season. I can't necessarily remember every game from last year, but. Uh, and they had very few wins last year, so I guess I should be able to remember <laughs> yeah. all those wins. But, no, I um, mean, but they didn't have this good of wins. To beat a quality team by 20 on the road on the back of stifling defense, one of the stifling. best defensive performances by any team this year in the league. I actually looked it up this today. It's fifteenth, the 15th best defensive performance of any team in a game this year, and about eight of those are against the 76ers. So ah, to do it against a good team one of the top is even 10, better. One of the top 10 offenses in the league. Right. I mean, that's that's the sort of thing that really gets you encouraged as a Jazz fan, especially because this team has been trying to build so long behind this defensive presence idea. And and quite simply, it's just been failing, right, with league-bottom defensive performances um, from, the last, from last year and then bottom 10 performances in the two seasons before that. While the Jazz aren't out of that hole yet, for them to show the quality of defense they did last night was stellar. It really was. Do you think now that there was... Just a bit of maybe the Bulls not playing up to where they usually do. Was it an off night for them at all, or did the like, Jazz just cause that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it was. I mean, you don't see the stars of Chicago's caliber play that poorly as often, but I think it was mostly the Jazz's defense. I mean, I saw a swarming Jazz defense, the likes of which I haven't seen in a decade. 
Yeah, and the 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 thing for me that I, that I've really enjoyed, and I, I sent some tweets about this last night, and I've enjoyed it last night and in in several games recently. Like it's been a, it's been we're going to talk a little bit about the trends over the last few weeks for the Jazz, which are all trending extremely positively. And one of them for me that I've noticed that. I think it's starting to bear out in the numbers eventually is that we noted earlier in the year the issues the Jazz have had off the ball defensively, that they've had a ton of trouble just with the whole help the helper idea, that when rotations start for your defense, which is just a thing that happens a lot in the NBA because good offenses are going to attempt to put you into tough rotations, that it's not necessarily just the first guy rotating over that's going to make or break the play. It's going to be the second guy or the third guy, sometimes even the fourth or fifth guy that comes over. The Jazz were just having a myriad of problems with this earlier in the year. The younger players just weren't picking up when they needed to do this. That has improved so much. The off-ball movement for guys that are leaning over on a pick-and-roll that are just stepping over two little steps to bother the pick-and-pop guy so he doesn't get a free look at a jumper, but then the perfect timing to scramble back out to the perimeter and make sure the shot isn't there. Gobert is obviously a huge part of this as we're going to talk about but it's it is more than him it is there's the full team has really committed to the concept it, it's a thing of beauty it, it really really is just just reading off some stats from last night and maybe these are more offensive than anything but Gordon Hayward 18 points five assists four rebounds Derek Favors 20 points 11 rebounds his second consecutive double double uh Rudy Gobert with 11 points and 14 rebounds I mean five blocks five blocks as well I, all of which were by the third quarter if I'm not mistaken <laughs> I mean and I mean he didn't play much in the fourth just because he didn't, well, need, to. He didn't need to with the Jazz up 20-25 points. Trey Burke had and, a nice little game when he, and, you, and you're starting to see from him when he's comfortable. He's doing a few nice things kind of on both ends and but it's, it's when he gets out of his comfort zone that he's having the issues. Agreed. Uh, last night was not one of those times. 17 points, 4 assists, 3 rebounds. Uh, I, I just think that that's an incredible win. I mean, I, I don't think I've been as happy watching a Jazz game it has Again, it's been a while for a long time just because this is what the jazz have been striving for for so long and finally we're seeing the signs that they really can be an elite team you know that this is a thing that you can build on and become a legitimate winning team either next year or the year after that. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, it, you know, these are the sorts of, we're not going to see a performance like that every game. It's not like we no. can just expect that from here going forward now that we've seen it once. That's not how it works with these younger teams. But the fact that we know they're capable of that for a full 48 minutes at a time, or in this case for 36 because they really didn't need it for 48 straight. They really just kind of needed it for 36 to get the game over with. Extremely encouraging. And, you know, it's not the first game in this sequence recently where we've seen the and. Up, but I think up until then we've been kind of been able to pass that off with well they've played a bunch of weak teams right they've had you know they played Minnesota twice they played Philly teams like that and that's all that's true last night was not a weak team that's a very very good basketball team on their home floor full strength yeah I, I fully agree with you it's as encouraging of a basketball game as a Jazz fan has watched in some time and again I I don't think it was shot luck like I don't think that they missed an inordinate number of three point shots and I don't think that they were missing shots that they normally would make maybe one or two here and there but just Overall, uh, uh, the defensive performance, again, was astounding. Let me know what you guys think about this out there in the in the world of audience. Um, <laughs> it's the best way to put that. Our phone number is 877-353-0700. Call in and let us know what you think of last night's game, the Jazz's defense, Rudy Gobert, or really whatever else you want to talk about in Jazzland. You can also tweet us at Andy B. Larson or Ben over here at Ben underscore Dowsett. Let me get into where the Jazz are defensively overall for the last few weeks because, again, it's a big leap from where they've been over the last season and a half. So they currently rank 11th in their last 11 games, uh, which is just kind of cherry-picking, let's be honest. But it's cherry-picking since this December 17th, kind of the middle of the road trip, the pre-Christmas road trip. 
Uh, so they're 11th in defensive rating in the league, 10th in net rating. So the idea is there that they're you know scoring 10th. They're ranked 10th in scoring more po- more points than their opponents on average. And again, this is a per possession for pace. Yeah, there's a per possession uh, stat that we're using here. Per 100 possessions is how they choose to express it because it's the it's the closest to an actual 100 point total, roughly. Um, right. And that's yeah. So it's to eliminate items like pace again for those who who are who don't know that metric off the top of their head. And then their first and rebounding percentage, which is just basically the percentage of available rebounds that the Jazz end up getting, which is really encouraging given that a they struggled with that earlier in the season, and b. It kind of makes sense given the rebounding talent that the Jazz have with Derek Favors, Ennis Cantor, and the super lanky Rudy Gobert. And a guy like Gordon Hayward playing at your three spot who's a well above average rebounder for his position also. That's a good point. Maybe his focus at getting those rebounds in the last, again, 11 games has been has been really helpful. Is it just the off-ball rotations that spin the difference? I mean, what else What else is causing this? I, I think it's kind of a, a whole big-picture thing, and we're seeing a team that is, you know, everybody was talking earlier in the year when things were kind of on a downward spiral about how some people were saying we need to let the process continue, we need to let, we need to let Quinn Snyder's system stick in, we need to give them the team more time together. I really think we're just kind of seeing that start to happen now, and an enormous amount of credit to Quinn Snyder. You're, you're, you're really starting to see the things that he's preaching pay off. Gobert, of course, has been a big, big factor. He he himself just causes so many problems for an opposing defense or opposing offense, excuse me, at all times while he's on the floor. You just have to change the way you play offense around him. But again, like I was saying, I, I really think it's more than him. And I, I do think his presence alone and how much he's been out there because he's, he's kind of been required to with Ennis Cantor sideline for a few games, I think has sort of galvanized the rest of the players on the team, if you will, to p- parts where Rudy isn't even necessarily affecting the game. Just the knowledge that he's out, out there on the court with them is, is giving them some type of increased confidence or, or galvanized, like I said, where they're... I think things have just clicked into place, and this is now a team that's enjoying doing this, where before they were laboring under it. Well, it lets you, having someone like Rudy Gobert back there lets you play closer to your man on offense, so that, you know, worst case, you do get blown by, you do have that second layer of protection. Mm. I mean, remember when we played that Trey Burke quote with Ennis Cantor, and he felt that Ennis didn't get, Ennis wasn't helping Trey after Trey got blown by? And we were like, well, Trey, you need to have some individual responsibility there. Maybe that's because the alternative was Rudy Gobert. And when Trey gets blown by and Rudy Gobert's back there, the the possession has an entirely different outcome than when Ennis Cantor is. Yeah, absolutely. And those kind of repercussions that you're seeing all over the place are, are absolutely vital. And your point about being able to stick closer to a man, that means that things where Rudy isn't close to the ball, like when opponents are taking three-pointers, for example, you wouldn't think that Rudy Gobert, off the top of your head, necessarily impacts any three-point shot taken. But he absolutely does if it means that the defend the wing defender for the Jazz in this case can stay a foot and a half closer to their guy on that three-pointer because they're not as worried about getting destroyed at the rim if the guy gets by them. Right. All of a sudden, that's a that's a contested shot that's significantly more likely to miss than yeah. otherwise. But again, I, I really do think that it's more than just Rudy, and we're seeing, of course, not as with as much success because they're just, the other big defensive players on Utah's roster just aren't as good as Rudy is defensively, so there is a drop-off when he leaves the floor, but I, I still think we're seeing the same sort of habits and problems process take place when he's off the court and that for me has been perhaps the most encouraging part because I think if you had told people at least over this last couple of game stretch that Rudy Gobert was going to play these kind of minutes they would have assumed the defense was going to be better that's what Rudy does to your team the team right. the, the defense gets better when he's playing 30 plus minutes a game but d- to me the, the most encouraging part is seeing those things even when he's not on the floor that's a good point I mean he was 
I believe it was a 78 D rating last night when he was on the floor. That's right. 83 overall. So that means, you know, the defense was better with Rudy Gobert in there, but it also means that it was still elite even when he wasn't. Yeah. And again, playing against an elite offense, small sample size, of course. And, you know, maybe Chicago just wasn't feeling it to some point. You never know about those little ins and outs there. But to me, I'm really encouraged and I want to see it continuing even as, you know, Cantor probably is unlikely to play this weekend, I think, but we'll likely see him back next week. Right. He Um, is currently doubtful doubtful, for tomorrow. Which means probably doubtful for the next night as well. Um, And even once he's back, though, this is what you look for, is you look for the process to continue and for the habits to continue. And I I think we're going to see it. I think Quinn is starting to really reach these guys. Yeah, I I think the evidence is out there on the floor. I thought it was interesting last night because Chicago, after the game, didn't give any credit to the Utah Jazz. They all kind of saw it as, in in their post-game quotes, as... You know, an anomaly, a team struggling on offense that's just going to happen during the course of an 82-game season. When I watched last night's game, I completely disagreed. Yeah, to a large point I did, especially when you're looking at some of the bigs. Like, I think maybe Gasol would think that he just had an off night for himself. But, dude, that's caused by the seven foot two guy whose arms are in your face constantly as you're know, as you as you're trying to post up and things like that. And he, Rudy destroyed him last night. Like, yeah. that was crazy. And this is, that's What does Rudy now. have against the Gasol brothers? Apparently, yeah, I was just going to so, make a crap So, I mean, like obviously that. we talked about the Memphis win earlier, the, the 97-91 Jazz win again against Memphis in Memphis, but then this France-Spain game during this summer, this FIBA World Cup game, when Rudy Gobert kind of took on both brothers and had this gigantic upset, led France to this win over Spain that nobody saw coming whatsoever. I mean, I I don't know if there's anything personal there, and it may just be a fluke. You know, we we have three data points at this yeah, point. But, yeah, yeah. Like, it's still kind of impressive. Yeah, absolutely. And, well, so, all right, so let's get into Rudy's yeah, let's talk specific about Rudy. impact. Now, first of all, I would like to say that I fully support Zach Lowe's idea of making Rudy Gobert the guy that gets his name in all caps and exclamation points <laughs> now when we're talking about it. used to be Larry Sanders right. up until I think it was sometime last season when Sanders was having all his issues and, they, and Zach had to take the name away from him, and fittingly so, I think. I think that needs to be there for Rudy Gobert just for his size and his impact of all things on the court. Zach, because I know you listen every single week all the time, I want I want to endorse that personally. Kevin Pelton, by the way, uh, ESPN Insider, said, quote-unquote, we can only hope that Rudy Gobert is a benevolent leader. <laughs> I like it. That's uh, He is becoming a superstar out there. I mean, okay, so... Let me read these defensive stats to you. These are from Nylon Calculus, actually the site you write for. Um, but basically, it's trying to figure out how many points defensively does an individual center save um, over the course of 36 minutes. At the, the rim, specifically. At, sorry, and at the rim. So, um, you know, basically comparing what are the elite, elite rim protectors in the NBA. And so you look at Roy Hibbert, and you look at Andrew Bogut, and you look at, you know, some of these guys, Bismack Biombos up there. There are a lot of good, you know, people who we think as really legitimate rim-protecting centers. And then there's Rudy Gobert at the top of the list by a really significant margin. So he's, first of all, he saves 4.94 points per 36 minutes. That's number one in the league, just to give you an idea. Next is Bogut at 3.54 points. So like, there's kind of everybody else, and then there's Rudy Gobert saving one and a half more points per game than the average NBA, not than the average, than the very second best. NBA rim protecting center. Yeah, and they, uh, these metrics courtesy of Seth Partnow, by the way, uh, on Nylon Calculus, just to give him the credit there. And yeah, I mean, he's nearly 
150% of what Bogut is in terms of, and Bogut <laughs> is second place, and then Hibbert is third with like a 3.12. Nobody else after that is higher than like 2.2 or so points per 36 minutes, which means that when you get down to fourth place, Rudy is more than double fourth place in terms of the number of points per 36 minutes he's saving at the rim. Now, Part of this comes from his wildly ridiculous contest percentage. He's contesting like nearly 70% of all shots taken at the rim while he's on the floor, which is a ludicrous number, and which is someone only someone like him can do. There aren't many guys that have his combination of skills that allow him to do something right. like that. Right. I mean, there are a lot of lanky guys in the NBA, and there are a lot of guys who kind of have the athleticism but are like the six eight six nine types. Yeah. Nobody has that kind of ability to move that agility as well as the length that Rudy Gobert does. Nobody. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Hibbert himself heaped the praise. He told me directly the other night after the game. He's, I asked him if, if he saw any of himself in a young Rudy Gobert. He said, no, he's way better than I was in my second year. He said that right to me. I was shocked. <laughs> I, and it was right after the game where they had had a little scuffle, you know, during right. the game. And I thought I he might just... He had all the reason in the world to be upset at exactly. Rudy. Exactly. I thought I might just get blown off or something like that. And he said, no, he is way further ahead of my trajectory than I was in my second year. He's more athletic. He he can finish around the hoop. He can jump higher. He told me those things, and I was I'll head explode at the moment <laughs> because that. I mean, Roy Hibbert is is. I think if you polled thirty NBA GMs, who is the most influential rim protector in the NBA? I think they'd still say Hibbert. Rudy's coming up, but he's he hasn't proven it over the long enough sample size yet. Right. Where Hibbert has, I, I think Hibbert would be the answer right there, probably. And for him to have that kind of a compliment for someone like Gobert is huge. Yeah, no, I totally agree, and it makes such a big difference. I mean, even if he's just. Uh, Saving two points a game over uh, at the rim against an average NBA center, which I think is actually underselling the case a little bit. I think it is. Then that gets the Jazz, I, I think, if I'm doing the math right, about five to six wins more over the course of a season just by being two points better per 36 minutes. I mean, that's that's what I see when I look at the these... Um, margin of victory stats on on Basketball mm-hmm. Reference. Am yeah. I am I wrong? At I don't think that? you are. Well, I think the key that goes into that is is factoring whether or not he detracts from you from your offense. Because, but okay. I, where he's coming to the point where he doesn't. We're starting to see more and more things from him offensively too. He's I mean he's not going to be some polished post player anytime soon. But we're seeing him be capable enough offensively. He he boards offensively like nobody's business, of course, and can dunk from basically anywhere where the ball is within his reach. Um, so I think that's the biggest question when you talk about the num- number of wins it might add conceivably over time. But yeah, two points per game is a big deal. People don't that doesn't sound like a big deal when you say it. That that's a big deal, right? Because yeah, any overtime game you know becomes a win. Yeah, yeah. I mean it, it's a big deal. Um, let me ask then. You know, first of all, do you think right now he has a more positive impact impact on the floor than Ennis Cantor does? Yeah, I I, I, don't, I think so too. I, I think it'd be really hard to argue. Be, uh, yeah, I I do, I, I I'm there with you. So now, what happens to Enes Kanter when he returns? I mean, first of all, do you start him? And then, if so, how can you play Rudy enough minutes to that? You know, he's kind of clearly shown that he deserves. And if not, do you have to trade him right away? Is Enes going to take this backup role? I mean, there are a lot of questions here. There That's... are a ton, and Rudy is not making the situation any easier. Which, I, if, in if the best ask, possible way. In the be- It's true. And if you ask me, what I would like to see when Ennis does come back is, I, to me, it's not 
as important who starts, especially because lately Quinn has been far more willing to yank guys quickly and do a lot more mix and matching and, 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 and even up the minutes. I would generally just like to see, and I apologize in advance here, Trevor Booker, I would like to see more of a three-man rotation, including just those three guys, where they get a lot of time each with each other. I want to see all three of those combinations. I want to see Favors and Gobert. I want to see Favors and Cantor, and I want to see Cantor and Gobert. I want to see all of them. Because we know that the, the time is coming that a decision is going to need to be made on Ennis Cantor. And I've, I've been having a fun uh, Twitter conversation before the show started about some potential trade candidates. And, and some people think I'm crazy and I think some other people are crazy. <laughs> and, that, and that just shows you, I mean, Cantor is a really hard case to read if the Jazz do decide they want to trade him or right. something. He's incredibly hard to read what his value might be, what the Jazz might be willing to take back for him. A bunch of stuff like that. It's incredibly complex. Dennis Lindsay, I do not envy you at the moment. Like, this is a tough situation that you've been put in. No, but it's a very best situation that you've been put in over the last two years of your tenure as general manager. Because before, you've kind of been dealing with these sort of bad problems. You know, like, are we going to start Richard Jefferson or Marvin Williams? You know, like, these sort of things that ultimately are not going to make you a winning team. Now you have a good problem where you're trying to decide, you know, is Rudy Gobert or Ennis Cantor the future of the franchise, and if the evidence says that that's Rudy Gobert, how do we get value out of it, Ennis Cantor? Like, that's not a problem that the Jazz have really had to deal with thus far. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a completely different. It's set a very, of yeah, it's a very different type of problem. And some, you know, there's good, there's quote unquote good problems that you run into, and this could be one of them. And but you know, at the moment, the there's almost no question that Gobert, in particular, is playing a lot better with favors. That that. That particular twosome, they're extremely mutually beneficial at the moment. Of the Jazz's two-man units, if you go to NBA.com, you can look at just the two-man units. They are the second best one the Jazz have that have at least played at least 50 minutes together on the season. What's Inter- number one? I'm just Number curious. one is Gordon Hayward and Dante Exum, huh, actually. Okay. And they actually have a lot of minutes together. Gordon and Dante have played like 300 minutes together, and they're a plus like 10 points per 100 possessions or wow. something like that, which is really good. Um, basically, when Favors and Gobert are on the court together— they score right around the Jazz's average, just a little below it, actually, which which you'd expect, given Gobert and, and Favors doesn't quite have the long shooting range yet to make that perfect offensively. But they defend better than the Golden State Warriors League best defense wow. in terms of a full season mark. But then Favors on the court without Rudy... They actually increase their scoring because I think a lot of those lineups are played with Ennis Cantor. And that's right, that makes decent, sense. Yeah, but they defend worse than the 30th-ranked Minnesota Timberwolves unit. And that's any that's any uh, favors lineup without Rudy Gobert gotcha. this the entire year. Um, that's a pretty huge discrepancy. And <laughs> yeah. there's an, we're coming to the point now where there are enough minutes to make those conclusions somewhat viable. Yeah, it's a difference between being literally the best team in the league and the worst team in the league defensively. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that you have – it's really a choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what happens in these next few weeks. We're coming up sort of quickly on the trade deadline here. I think the noise is going to really increase around Salt Lake City about Cantor specifically. I don't think Rudy's going to play any worse. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued intrigued yeah i i am too i mean the the trade deadline is about five weeks away so i can't believe it's that soon <laughs> well and we've seen a lot of trades that we'll get to in the nba uh in the last week or two i i think you know the jazz could almost make this move sooner than later if you know they don't have to wait until the trade deadline to make this move if the team wants to get as much value of venice canter as possible out of this contending run 
now might be the time to trade him. Yeah, I I, I think that's true, and I think there's a, a again the opinions of what value you might be able to get back for him are, are massively fluctuating here. But I I do think if you think that he's you know it only takes one expletive delete one jerk it only takes one <laughs> jerk they say in the off season and. If the Jazz think that that's something that's going to happen and he's going to get an offer they can't match or that they won't be comfortable matching, you have to think about getting value back for him. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, Dennis Lindsay, will, we actually asked Dennis Lindsay about this earlier in the week, about what his mindset is going into the trade deadline. We'll play his answer to that and more questions about the Utah Jazz next. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the show. I'm Andy Larson, Managing Editor of Salt City Hoops. Ben Dowsett on the other side. You can tweet us at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett. Let us know your thoughts on just how well the Jazz have been playing thus far. Again, 7-4 and four out of their last 11, um, as well as some excellent defense last night against the Chicago Bulls. And by the way, I apologize if someone has already done that to my handle. There's been a long debate raging in my handle that's included <laughs> me that I was only a part of like an hour ago. That uh, I, So I've had a ton of notifications. If you did and I didn't see it, I apologize. The moral of the story is don't get into Twitter arguments, Ben. Yes, I know. It, it wasn't even really a debate when I was in it. it well. Kind of. I don't know. I don't know if I believe that with you. <laughs> You're a troublemaker. <laughs> anyway, we've got Dennis Lindsay quotes to play here. I wanted to know uh, what Rudy, uh, sorry, what Dennis Lindsay's thoughts were on Rudy Gobert. So let's let's hear from him on Rudy's improved play. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Rudy was able to use last year, uh, even though he didn't get the minutes, he was able to uh, get uh, uh, a lot of time with Mark McCowan and, and to improve his body. And, and, and then we, there was some skill set things that we wanted to address. He and Alec Jensen addressed his free throw. We changed his shooting slot. And then I think the summer league uh, was the start of, of uh, him hitting a different level. And then it certainly continued with the FIBA World Championships. And uh, we're very, very pleased with his development. I think the free throws are perhaps the most interesting part of what Dennis had to say right there. Hmm. And it's something that you can tell the Jazz are big on because Quinn Snyder himself made that same sort of comment, I think, a few days later before the Pacers game when asked about Gobert. Uh-huh. And you can, I mean, you can see there's been a big improvement. The sample size is still a little bit small, but he's shooting 65% from the line this year compared to just under 50 last year, which is 65 isn't ain't great or anything, but it's certainly a lot better. But it than makes shooting. you playable because yeah. you know oh, yeah. no one wants to foul you when you're shooting 65%. It doesn't help your defense at all, right? Yeah. If you're under 50%, then teams think about doing the hack-a-shack move, and, and it might make some sense. And we don't want anybody hacker-rooting. No. hacker I'm not going to try and say that. Again. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think there's probably that, some French equivalent. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we've got a somebody tweet me the equivalent of that in French. <laughs> um, no, but and we've seen you know I've I've seen Rudy doing a lot of that in warmups before games. He's taking a lot. I mean, not that all guys don't occasionally take some free throws and warmups and things like that, but I think it's been a really big point of emphasis for him that and his just general things with his touch. And we're seeing how quick they're improving. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think maybe the most interesting thing to me out of that quote was how much they worked on his body. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, I think that's what we've seen really the results from thus far is he does look b- better defensively this year than he did last year. I mean, I think last year he was still a presence, but this year he's an otherworldly presence. And, yeah. you know, the Jazz deserve a lot of credit for that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go into that trade deadline question that I teased going into the break, asking what Dennis Lindsay's mindset is going into uh, the trade deadline just five weeks away. 
You know, it's really that there's uh, we're, we're going to address uh, moves that have the long-term interest of the Utah Jazz. So uh, I think Quinn, I really appreciate his mindset. Uh, he, he's He's been as mindful of what we're going to look like two years from now versus two weeks from now. So even though Rudy or Dante could have some rough uh, stretches, as you can see, Aaron, they're, they're still out there. So I think um, not that we wouldn't address a particular need uh, on the short term. I think we'll, we'll wait 12 months, 24 months heavier than we would you know, uh, addressing the need two weeks out. So. Two thoughts on that. First of all, you can tell my question stumped him with all the uhs and ums. <laughs> I don't know if he's been thinking about it recently. No, I I think that's an incredibly encouraging answer from Dennis Lindsay, especially with regards to Quinn Snyder being on board. And, uh, you know, I think the, the subtext there may have been Mr. Ty Corbin may not have been on board with such long-term moves for the Utah Jazz. I mean, for Ty Corbin was, was very much thinking about his win-loss record, his future as an NBA coach after the Utah Jazz, I think, at times last season. Quinn Snyder is thinking about what's best for the Utah Jazz long-term, assuming that Quinn Snyder is going to be a part of it, you know, he with the long-term contract that he signed. And that's a big difference. That allows a coach and a general manager to be on the same page and say, look, if we can trade Ennis Cantor right now and get something that will help us in the long-term, then it may make sense to do it. That was that was my question. Was that entire quote really just subtext for? Yeah, we'll look at trades for Cantor. Like, no, I, I mean because Ennis Cantor is only whatever is he twenty two or twenty three. Regardless, yeah. he's a young guy who's gonna you know he could help in the future as well. But that being said, he's also a free agent this summer. Yeah, and his yeah and his oh man his situation just I know we discussed it before. <laughs> We're not gonna get into it again. But it's, there are so many moving parts with that situation. It's really unbelievable. But I agree with you. I really like that this is exactly where this organization should be right now. They know that this is not a year where what whether they win or lose is a huge deal. They right. like that's that's the process matters more, the habits matter more, so on and so forth. And with that in mind, you can make moves that are gonna that have more of an eye to down the road. And I think that's exactly what's happening. Okay, I want to get into a little bit, even though you said you didn't want to. Oh, I'm up for it. I just didn't want to repeat myself. <laughs> no, I, I'm curious. You said you've had these conversations with people around the league about how much Ennis Cantor is worth in this trade deadline. What is the range of opinions that you've gotten? Well, the actual question that I generally asked people was, what would you pay Cantor? What would you, if you were an opposing GM who had a, a potential fit for him on your team somewhere, okay. what would you offer him in restricted okay, in terms free of agency? Money. Yeah, gotcha. if he made it to restricted free okay. agency. I got numbers as low as three years, 20 million, or three years, 18, which would be like just six million a year or just right. over that. All the way up to eight figures a year on a four-year deal. Wow! From and these are and I would like to think that the people I was speaking to in gen. I'm not saying I have a. Well, ton wait of, a second. Eight figures a year could be anything, right? Ten million is eight figures a year. Still, though, I mean, dude, like, I, and they, and it wasn't like anybody was saying fourteen. Nobody said okay. that. But I was I was seeing I, I heard 10, 11 to twelve million. A so couple you got of like four forty, four forty-four, yeah, somewhere in there. That sort of thing. And I, you know, none of these were NBA GMs. I'm not trying to pretend I have those contacts just yet. <laughs> but they were. I would like to think they're smart people who know what they're talking. About in general, right? No, but I mean, if you ask someone who follows, say, the Knicks very closely, you're, you know, you're going to hear more. You're going to get an informed opinion about what they could or conceivably should offer a, a free agent like Ennis. Yeah, yeah. And then just earlier today, this the the aforementioned uh, Twitter thing that was clogging my my thread for a minute <laughs> was a discussion about what potential returns could be for Cantor, and I suggested. 
vaguely, that the ceiling for that sort of a deal, and I, again, I do think this is a ceiling, would be a late, a late, late first-round pick from a contending team this year. And ceiling like an, being the most that the yeah, Jazz the ceiling could being get back. the most the Jazz could get okay. um, would be a, a late first round pick from a vet this year who needs a solid third big along with maybe an, maybe a veteran expiring to make the salaries work out right um, which. And I, I had certain people disagree with that. Certain people agree with it. The specifics of some of it, in terms of what the Jazz might be willing to bring back and what they might not, um, were a, a large point of debate. I, I do again think that that's the absolute ceiling, and you're going to have to find a team that's really unhappy with its third big. And I, I, I did identify there a couple of candidates. Teams. I think Washington might be a legitimate candidate. I think Atlanta might be a legitimate candidate. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, do we not think that Ennis Cantor could be a little bit better than Elton Brand and Mike Scott? Yeah, I do think so, and they have the money that they could make it work where they just. Say one expiring back that the Jazz could just stash and then it's gone next year and you've got the cap open all of a sudden. And if they sent their first round pick, which is going to be like 26 or 20, 25 or something like that this year. Seems like a fair deal. Yeah, I mean, and, and you never know how teams around the league value Cantor specifically and some GM might like him more than another. Right. Um, think he can fit him better into his system than another. Uh, th- those types of things. There, and again, like, that's why I said there's just a massive amount of moving parts and any GM trading for Cantor of course knows that he's a restricted free agent this upcoming offseason and they'll have to deal with that that there's a there's a lot going on here of course that could be secretly a good thing for a team of course it is a team might be thinking that you know what our window is right now it's this year we're going to use him this year we're going to take a run at whatever we're taking a run at and then if he gets too big of an offer we can just let him go and we've got that cap space all of a sudden yeah I, i think that makes a lot of sense for some team even if they just look at it as an eventual cap space open upper in open upper in the summer of 2015 yeah Let's talk, actually, let's ask Dennis Lindsay about the Jazz's overall growth and development as they've, as far as they've made it this, so far this year. I, I, think, I think we're seeing signs, as you guys can see. Uh, look, uh, it's a tough last, loss last night. We, we, we felt like we played well enough to win, and we weren't able to convert some shots and, and free throws, and those things happen. I do think the, uh, some of the foundational pieces are proving their worth what we need to do is to continue to connect those pieces and so those returns right now uh, I think we've seen some real progress Uh, our habits our communication our activity on defense has been significantly better over the last six or seven games and would hope that the players see with all their hard work that that, uh, it's starting to bear fruit and get excited about that And, and and then offensively, again, uh, it, there, there have been signs, and we, we've trended better than most young teams offensively. But losing Alec, that, we'll have to adjust to that. That's a, a very significant offensive contributor, and we'll have to find the best ways to do that, whether that's uh, Trey with the ball more, um, Gordon with the ball even more than he already has, uh, Dante. Uh, we'll learn more about Rodney. So. Again, we'll, uh, the, the flow offense is, you know, it's, there's a lot to it. And, and Quinn is not dumbing it down because we have a young group. There's a lot of expectations. And so some of the subtleties of what we want to do will get lost because there's so much coming at them. But I think over time, uh, for example, uh, Dante's cut out of flow where you see Joe pass you know, by the ear of guys, that's one of the things that, uh, one of the situations we got in San Antonio with Manu and Tony and, 
And uh, so some of those subtleties we hope to capitalize on, but frankly, you know, we're, we're years away from, from mastering what we want to do. Again, I, I could not love more the way that Dennis comes <laughs> across on these types of things. This is just – he is saying the perfect amount of stuff without giving away too much at the same time. You, you can't get into the super specifics of all these. He couldn't go further than what he's saying and say – you know, Alec Burks is having a lot of problems learning this system. He can't. You can't say something like that. Right. But the way he said it, and the 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 way that, like you were mentioning before, kind of in tune with Quinn Snyder, the, those two appear to really be working well together. And and be you see these issues. And we mentioned Ty Corbin earlier, and the guy he just replaced out in Sacramento. That that was like a huge issue out there. Is that the the communication between the coach and the people above him was really bad right. like really really bad and it ended up it's, it's a, a total dumpster fire over there now <laughs> as a result and I, I i just love it i'm a huge fan of both dennis Lindsay and quinn snyder in and, case and it's works. awesome that you know the jazz are starting to show things that the san antonio spurs do yeah because you know they are the pinnacle they are the elite executing executing nba franchise and I think Dennis knows as well as anybody that th- that the Spurs were not built in a day. Right. They they weren't even built in a year. They weren't even built in two. The <laughs> the, the Spurs that we saw last year in that finals, that sort of the 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 peak of all their their efforts over the years, that really was over the years. Like that really took 5 years of that core being around for them to have that level of comfort with each other and that level of where it just it didn't look like they were thinking about anything. It looked like they were just doing it. And there's no better combination of guys than Dennis Lindsay, the former assistant GM for the Spurs, and Quinn Snyder, a former assistant coach for the Spurs, to mm-hmm. actually make those sort of changes happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Let's go ahead and take another break. On the other side, though, I'm excited. We're talking the MVP race. It's wide open this year. There are so many different candidates to choose from. Uh, each of us are going to pre- present our top five of the MVP race thus far. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome back into the show. So, I'm Andy Larson, by the way. Ben Dowsett on the other side of the table. You're not a by the way, Andy. You're a, you're a important person. Thank you. I appreciate that. Together, it's John, by the way, is a fantastic producer. John LaFollette on the other side of the glass, making everything run smoothly. Um, so... This NBA season is one of the more wide-open ones I can ever remember. In fact, it may be the most wide-open NBA season I can remember in terms of just the number of teams that are still contending, the number of teams that we didn't expect to be at the top of their conferences, at the top of their conferences. You know, this playoffs is going to be very interesting, but this MVP candidacy, this MVP race is going to be very interesting as well. And there are a lot of cool contenders for it. So uh, we kind of wanted to give an ode to the season, break it down a little bit, figure out who it is that would be in our top five MVP race this so far this year. So how do we want to do this, Ben? I'll, I'll go first if I if I'm okay. Honest. Sure. Okay. So the, and just so you know, this is actually a sneak preview for anyone who reads me at B-Ball Breakdown. This is a sneak preview of a piece of mine that's going to be published tomorrow because I'm. Ooh, it's all about Salt City hoops. It is right now. That's why I'm giving the sneak peek the night before. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> Special okay. for Salt City hoops people. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to start at number five and I'm going to work my way down. At number five, I have Mr. Anthony Davis. At number four, I have Mr. Marcus Gasol. At number three, I have Damian Lillard. At number two, I have James Harden, and at number one, like I think most people would at this point, I have Stephen Curry. What about you? I've got, I'll go backwards to forwards too. I've got Marcus All fifth. You have him fourth. I have James Harden fourth. You have him second. 
I have Kyle Lowry third, okay. and you have him not at all. Okay. And that I am upset about. Kyle Lowry deserves to be up there. He is the best player on a Toronto Raptors team that, 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 that's currently second in the East and is getting not enough credit for it. He needs to be in that top five conversation. And he was, and by the way, when I went through making these decisions, there are literally five to six guys who I left out for these. I, I think that personally, and I know you don't agree because you ranked Harden fourth, but I think Steph and Harden are a pretty clear one-two at this point in my mind at least. And the next three spots could have been filled by about ten different guys. Okay. And Lowry is certainly one of them, absolutely. So is Jimmy Butler. Um, That's fair. Yeah. I mean, I, I so I look at Toronto's win-loss record, by, which, by the way, is better than Houston's, and I look at the surrounding talent there, which I think Houston's is better, although, you know, there's some argument there. I don't. Di- I, I disagree. We can get into that, though. Okay. We'll get into it later. Uh, so, Lowry third. I've got Anthony Davis second, who, honestly, is throwing up one of the best seasons of all time on a non-great team. You know, his PER up there, I believe, is still top five all time. Um, it's 31.9 right now, which is incredible. And he just does so many things that, quite frankly, I don't know that I've ever seen another NBA player do. He's putting up those kind of stat lines that no one else in the league is doing. I, I think even though he's not on a contending team, we shouldn't hold that against Davis. I think he's number two, and then I've got Steph Curry number yeah. one as well. So, okay, so we don't need to debate Steph. I think it's clear that he's the, he's the top pick currently yeah, let's, for MVP. Let's Although do a I don't 30 think, second ode to him, though. Yeah, because... I don't think he's infallible, first of all. I don't think he's okay. so far ahead that he couldn't lose the award if, he, if things change as the season goes on, and I don't necessarily subscribe to the best player on the best team has to win the award type of thing. In fact, I think that's fairly ridiculous but logic. But Golden State is the best team. But they are the best team. And sometimes that narrative just happens to lend itself particularly well because teams tend to be really good in the NBA because of really good players, right. and it just works out that way. Steph's been amazing. He's the most dangerous, consistent offensive player in the league. The way that he impacts opposing defenses, even when he doesn't have the ball, is it's like Kyle Korver, but it's Kyle Korver who can also dribble and finish at the rim insanely well. Insanely well. Did you know Steph is the second-ranked guard in the league finishing in the rim right? Finishing at the rim right now? I did not. He's That's a fun like, fact. He's shooting like 72% at the rim. Wow. It's ridiculous. He's, he's insane. He's really really good that's the ode to him and, and 28 to 5 yeah 28 and 5 is their record that's awesome that it's really hard to overlook that and as far as records go that's why davis was as far down for me as he is to me the award is most valuable player and when you're talking about value to me the value that a player brings to an nba team is achieving his team's success sure. and the fact that i i know that anthony's uh, supporting cast is is terrible and has been for a lot of the year his coach makes a bunch of ludicrous decisions that nobody <laughs> ever understands and that's legit a legit argument and i I still did put him in my top five because I wanted to give a nod to just how ridiculous his performances have been stats-wise and eye test-wise. He's really amazing to watch. But in terms of the value he's actually bringing, I I do actually think he's a slightly overrated defender. He's going to be in the mix for Defensive Player of the Year this year, and he does not deserve to be. He's still – guys with some moves and things like that can still get him on ice skates a little bit. They can still get him out of position. He lunges too much to try and get blocks, which is probably why he's leading the league in blocks, which I don't debate is a good thing, but I (laughs) – I just I don't quite see a player. That's the first time I've ever heard leading the league in blocks used as a as a negative against someone. No, it's not that that fact itself isn't a negative, but the times when he jumps himself out of position looking for those blocks are bad things. Okay. And I, I just overall I don't necessarily know that he's adding the value that some of these other guys are to their teams, but that said he's 21. And this will probably be the last time I ever rank him this low again for the next like 7 years. Look, so So my statistical point of view is besides just the 
PER. He's also second in the league behind Curry in ESPN's real plus minus stat. Once you adjust for all of his teammates, you actually see that he is adding that value on the floor, and mm-hmm. that's why I, had, I have him second. Yeah, and that, you know that that's an entirely fair argument, and really to me, as long as he doesn't win, and that sounds kind of jerkish of me to say, but I just <laughs> don't. I just don't. Fi- I, I. I. Period. I don't believe you can win the MVP if your team doesn't make the playoffs. I'm sorry if that if that makes me less of, uh, analytics based because I think there might be a few in analytics who would argue that, especially the people who are really heavy on RPM, that, which is a stat that you just mentioned. I just don't think that should happen. You, you, how valuable can you really be if you aren't good? At, like LeBron led a bunch of high school players to the playoffs a bunch of years consecutively. Right. If one player is capable of doing that, then I think that the, the MVP needs to go to somebody who makes the playoffs. And Davis would be doing that in the East. That's true. That's true. You know what? That's a, that's a <laughs> that, good point. That's my point of view. And I, mean, I, I don't, I don't actually have much of a problem with him being anywhere second and further. So okay. I don't have a problem with you putting him. Second. And Steph still is number one by this metric. So it's not like you know yeah. we disagree that much. It's just yeah. where Anthony Davis ranks. And Lowry, I love too. He's. Uh, it was really hard to keep him off, and it was really. So hard let's to have keep this Lowry Lillard argument for a second, okay. because Kyle Lowry, I think, again has a worse supporting cast than Lillard, in my point of view. With LaMarcus Aldridge, to me, is the clear 1A uh, and Lillard 1B. I mean, still, you know, the clear two-cut stars on that team. Lowry, right now, especially without DeRozan, is their number one guy and is absolutely doing everything on the court for them. Yeah, and I can agree with that, and I, I would he would be, for me, somewhere right between 6, 7, 8, somewhere right in there. He'd be in the discussion, and a few good weeks of play with a few bad weeks from a couple of these other guys could easily vaunt him right up into my top five. I Like I'm saying, I think two through, or for me, really, because I do think Harden is two, for me, three through six or seven or eight are insanely difficult and might rotate a lot as the year goes on. Okay, so... You're you're not defending your arguments enough. <laughs> but the, that's the you point. Argue more. That, that's the point is that it's really yeah, hard to argue. Really now, close. here's the thing about Lillard that I will say though say is it. that he has been absolutely incredible this year. The rim at the rim is another big thing for him. He's one of the worst guards in the league the last two years at the finishing at the rim. All of a sudden this year, he's one of the top ten. You wow. can tell he's clearly worked on his play there. He's worked on his play off the ball as well. And Lillard is the only player on Portland's roster with whom, when he leaves the court, they begin to be outscored on a per possession basis. No other player, including Aldridge. In fact, when Aldridge leaves the court, they still outscore their opponents by three and a half points per one hundred possessions, which hmm. is just fine yeah. considering the small times he's leaving the court for. They get outscored by about that much when Lillard leaves the court which to me that's a big deal and I, I, Lowry has those numbers like that too the yeah. Raptors aren't good with him off the court but that, that's the argument I use for not to Lillard. reveal my methodology here but Kyle Lowry is number three Damian Lillard's number four in ESPN's RPM okay okay I, I they I have are to admi- essentially tied yeah I have to admit I like RPM as a contextual measure I don't enjoy it so much as a as a actually ranking as a final like ranking one guy over another guy. And I think thing. that these rankings are as good as they are. Is I, I like Steph Curry one, Davis two, Lowry three is a completely reasonable MVP ballot to me. Mm. I think that shows ESPN's or RPM strength because for it to have those three guys in as disparate of context as they have ranked one two three i think is really powerful that's fair enough that's fair enough and i'm gonna say i i hate myself for having (laughs) for having to put james harden where i had to put him he's probably my least favorite player in the league i'm not shy about admitting it his game is just not aesthetically pleasing at all it's Mm. i don't enjoy watching him play basketball but the fact is if we're talking about value added to a team that i really think it's it's just insane and the fact that he's been able to play on a team that that defends as well as they do and kind of like the way curry's been able to play on the best 
best defense in the league without cratering them. The way Harden's but he's, he's not an above-average defender by himself, but that he's become good enough that they've been able to work him into one of the league's five best defenses means a lot to me. Yeah, and I, I think... You you hit the two points with Harden. I mean, right now, for example, we've got this Houston Knicks game on. Houston's winning by 24, but I haven't watched any of it. I don't, I don't know that watching Harden play basketball is that exciting. I don't enjoy it that much. But if if I had to pick a player for my team in the next, you know, for a playoff series this year, he'd be right up near the top of the guys I'd pick. 15 second ode to Marcus All. He's really good and fun. Oh, he's so much fun. He's he's shooting the jumper really well. He's the fulcrum for their whole offense, which is so much better than it's been in previous years. Yeah, I mean, if Marcus All is one of those guys of just basketball junkies. Love because of his mm-hmm. style of play. He plays so smart out there. Yeah. Anyway, next segment, we've got our big guest of the show, Nate Duncan of Basketball Insiders, joins us, talks about the Jazz and the NBA, Rudy Gobert, etc. He's going to be joining us next. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show. You're listening to Andy Larson, by the way, and uh, Ben Dowson on the other side, John LaFollette behind the glass, mentioning everybody as always. Um... <laughs> You can always tweet us at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett. You can also call us at 877-353-0700. But for right now, we have the man himself, Nate Duncan, joining us from Basketball Insiders. Nate was actually in town last week um, watching the Jazz and just, again, continues to blow me away with how much he knows about the league in general. So, Nate, thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Yes, yeah, uh, so much more real now that we actually uh, met in person and had uh, the Derriger NBA Cheesecake Factory meal. Uh, you know, the only place to go after the game. You yeah. can't really know somebody until you have Cheesecake Factory after an <laughs> NBA basketball game with them. And, and fully half of the Jazz's roster was there after the game. I, I, yeah, I, well, it says a lot about a person whether they order the fourteen hundred calorie meal or the twenty five hundred calorie <laughs> meal at a Cheesecake Factory. Well, let's let's get into the Utah Jazz a little bit. Um, first of all, how what do you think of their play over this last stretch? They're seven and four in their last eleven. They're in the top ten or near it in defensive rating over the last eleven as well. Like, what do you make of this new look Utah Jazz? It's remarkable. It really is because they've had so many guys out. If you look at who their wing rotation is, I mean, if you if you looked at the start of the year, you'd say, all right, you know, they've got Trey Burke, someone who wasn't that good last year, but maybe we can see him going forward to be, you know, at least a decent start of this year. Um, cancer has been out. They've been starting Rudy Gobert, who was not, you know, though he always had potential, not really an established player. Derek Favors, okay, kind of an average starter. Same thing, Gordon Hayward, maybe a little bit above last year. And then, you know, Joe Ingles was cut by the Clippers in training camp, never someone who was really particularly on the NBA radar before this year. That's their starting lineup. And they've been doing amazingly well, with even with Burks out. You know, Dante Exum is not really someone who's, you know, sort of a fringe rotation guy at this point, although he obviously is loaded with potential. So it's really remarkable what they've been able to do because they just have so many guys who are kind of in the rotation right now who are just sort of guys that you would have never even thought could be any good and maybe even aren't that good, and yet they're still winning lately. 
do you think that in in some strange way it might be a and we and you're they're also missing Rodney Hood uh, at the moment is the one guy you didn't mention right, exactly, in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Do you think that? And this sounds weird to ask. Do you think there's a bit of an addition by subtraction type thing going on, or is it mostly just addition by Rudy Gobert? Well, I, th- I think that's part of it. I think just not only that, but the fact that uh, he and Favors are now playing together, I think it's made them really difficult to score on. And also the fact that Trey Burke now, after just an execrable start to the season, is getting his mojo back a little bit and starting to get to the point where he at least is not just, you know, hasn't been awful. He's at least been passable and, you know, has had actually some really good games in this stretch as well. So I think that's that's kind of been more of the key. And then, you know, someone like Joe Ingles, not a guy who puts up a lot of stats, but he at least moves the ball, you know, can get penetration even if he's not going to finish. And, and he's at least a smart player. So despite his kind of relative zero in the box score, I think he's someone who has helped a little bit as well. But we'll see. I mean, you, you have to imagine they're going to crash back to earth pretty soon, right? Because they're just playing too many guys with, you know, who you wouldn't even think necessarily are NBA players. I mean, they're playing. How many minutes did Elijah Millsap play last night? You know, a guy just got called up from the D league. Like you're not supposed to be able to win when you have this many guys out and you're playing guys who are just, you know, off the scrap heap essentially. Right. But that being said, did you get a chance to watch last night's jazz bowls game? Uh, I caught about the, the middle two quarters of it, uh, trying to prepare for this appearance and also just because I try to <laughs> watch most Bulls games. Um, Let me yeah, ask, so I did get a chance to watch it. Did you think that was a flukish offensive performance by the Bulls, or did you think that that was you know, really the Jazz's defense causing them to miss as many shots as they did? Well, your uh, listenership is not going to be too interested in me uh, <laughs> going on ad nauseum about the Bulls because I, I have quite a few thoughts on them, but I think – you know, Derek Rose got to the basket and missed some shots that he might make. But, you know, I think Rudy Gobert got in their heads a lot. Uh, Pau Gasol definitely, you know, had one of his kind of off nights where his 45% hook shots weren't really dropping for him. But also, you know, and, and also I think the Bulls have some problems, especially when they're playing Kirk Heinrich as much as, as, much as they are. Um, you know, the Jazz did a really nice job, especially Dante Exum when he was guarding him of basically just completely ignoring him and, and shutting down the Bulls post game, And that's actually a nice skill that Exum has is doubling off guys and then with his lateral quickness still being able to recover back to the perimeter. So, I mean, you know, obviously the answer to those questions is always going to be both, but certainly Gobert was a force, and I think Favors is so much better of a defensive player at power forward where he's kind of a plus, whereas at center – He's not really good enough protecting the rim to be, uh, you know, so he ends up kind of being more of a minus there. So, you know, the early returns from that uh, front court partnership have been very encouraging. And, and I mean, I, I'm inclined to believe that it's at least something until we see differently. I would like to, before I ask my next question, I would like to just repeat that Nate Duncan just confirmed that Derek Favors plays better at the power forward spot generally, and especially when he's along a tr- alongside a true center like someone like Gobert. And I would like to point out that this is something that I have been saying for a long, long time. Yeah, and yeah, that, yeah. And that a number of people have been disagreeing with me about this, and Nate Duncan's the smartest person in the world, so he just <laughs> said it, guys. Uh, 
But, Nate, I wanted to ask you, yeah. you mentioned Exum in there, and I think Exum has been really kind of, especially if you look back at what his pre-draft stock was and what people thought about him coming into the draft, he's been, in many ways, a polar opposite. He was supposed to be a pretty bad shooter and a pretty bad defender because those weren't just things that he had done at the NBA level before, and he's been decently passable at both those things, especially really at, at defensively for a rookie. I, th- I think he's been way more than anyone could have expected. But then at the same time, his usage is down really far because he just hasn't shown the kind of willingness and ability to make his own offense like we kind of thought might be a skill that was there for him right away, his speed and his first step and ability to get to the hoop and things like that. What do you think this sort of style kind of means for his development? Does it maybe mean not too much because he's just a 19-year-old who's timid? Or is this something Jazz fans, in a sense, should be happy about but also, in a sense, maybe worried that he can't do some of the things we were thinking he was going to be able to do well? Uh, it's a slight worry to me. I mean, I was very, very high on him going into the draft, and I, and I completely agree, by the way, with your assessment of, of his play as being a little bit different than we might have thought. You know, you would have thought he was sort of a guy who was going to be a high turnover player, is going to drive into traffic all the time and, and, you know, show some flashes, but also, you know, be pretty reckless. And that hasn't really been the case at all. Now, maybe that's because he takes coaching really well, and that's what he's being asked to do. Um, you know, obviously they're not asking him to create a ton, and he has flashed some pretty nice vision on occasion. I think the biggest problem is he's just not that good at dribbling yet. Uh, and he's got the speed. He's just got to get some more moves. I mean, he's not used to the type of ball pressure that NBA point guards can apply when he's, uh, you know, dribbling the ball and matched up against point guards. And then he also is not really strong enough to go against guys on the wing or to finish inside. So I think we haven't really seen him try to push the envelope like you may have seen a little bit more in summer league. Like he had some pretty spectacular plays in the summer league when he just sort of was just going all out and and playing totally on instinct. And now, you know, I think the fact that he's been able to do all the things you talked about so well do bode well. It's a little concerning. We haven't seen as much of this other stuff, but I'm not worried yet. And I think it's something that when he just gets a few more moves, then his natural physical ability can take over. Let me ask you about the development of another jazz young guy, Rudy Gobert. Uh, obviously taken a lot of steps this year. How unique is it for someone to develop like that, especially someone at the bottom of the lottery? And, and how Bottom of the first round, even. Sorry, yeah, bottom of the first round, excuse me. And, and how, do you think, how far do you think he can come? You know, What is his ceiling? I always thought he was going to be good. I couldn't understand why he was drafted so late. Personally, I, I, and that's, I mean, it may have been unique for a lot of people because I actually saw his big breakout performance in person at the Euro camp in 2012. As I just, I just happened to be there as I was just starting to get into NBA writing. And he was very dominant there. They were talking about him as a top five pick. And then I could never figure out exactly what he did to kind of lose that status in what was a weak draft, but he ended up getting drafted number 27. I mean, he put up pretty similar, pretty good numbers in France. Uh, during that 2012-13 season, and he just has a ton of talent. It's it's obvious, like he's has the talent to be a top five rim protector in this league, potential defensive player of the year type of guy. Offensively, I think, you know, I I heard him get compared to Roy Hibbert. You'll you'll hear that a lot. I like him better than Hibbert because. Hibbert is someone who really kills your offense because he's terrible at catching passes and dunking them. You know, he's not a guy who can be a target on, on alley-oops and, 
if you throw it to him, it takes him an hour to get off the ground. He gets a lot of shots blocked. You know, Rudy can finish inside when he can kind of get a gather himself without actually like having a body on him. Uh, the problem is he's not really strong enough that when someone is actually, you know, he catches the ball and someone's chested up on him, then it's usually going to be a total disaster. But that's fine. You know, he's he doesn't necessarily need to develop a post game to be a really really effective player. So I certainly think, you know, becoming someone like Tyson Chandler and maybe even a little bit better at the basket uh, is something that he could be potentially if he keeps working on his body and his feel and his defensive position. And, you know, with his ascension that we're seeing right now, and, and Andy and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, we're starting to see, especially within the confines of Jazz Nation, if you will, and Jazz Twitter and all those things, we're starting to see a a, a bit of a debate rage between who's the guy for the future in terms of the spot next to Derek Favors as the, as the, the second big for the Jazz. And the, the question, of course, looms with Ennis Cantor, who hits restricted free agency after this year. Nate, what, what do you make of Ennis Cantor, I've I've said like four times on the show already, I just think his situation is so complex with the fact that he hits restricted and what Gobert's done, but we're not sure if this is sustainable over a long sample. And there, I think opinions around the league of, of Cantor range so wildly that you're not really sure what kind of an offer he might take in restricted free agency. What are your thoughts on him? And if you're the Jazz, what are you, what are you thinking about doing with him right now, especially as it relates to Gobert? Well, I think the the answer to the question of who it should be is is Gobert. I mean, he they've played much better with him on the floor. I think he's already better than Cantor. I mean, he's not a more skilled basketball player by any means. And I don't mean to discount uh, Cantor's development. He's a pretty young guy. I think he's he's a good scorer. Someone who even you know could be uh, close to a twenty point scorer in this league potentially. Like that's not without value. But Rudy Gobert is a game changer on defense, and the Jazz offense is. You know, it's pretty decent already. And I think when you look long-term, they have guys who can develop into being quality offensive players. They just need that defensive force, and that's Gobert. I mean, he's when you look at Gobert is a much better defensive player relative to other defensive players than Cantor is an offensive player relative to other offensive players. And I think, you know, Cantor is someone who's, with his physical limitations, is always going to be a bit of a liability defensively no matter how hard he works at it. So that, that's sort of the context for this. But then you look at the financial situation. And my prediction, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say take this to the bank by any means because, as you noted, it's very complex. I think what's probably going to happen is that he actually ends up taking the qualifying offer from the Jazz this year. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is he was the number three pick, so he's already made a reasonable amount of money. He's not like a guy – like, you know, Jimmy Butler, who's ended the first round, has been making a million bucks a year. He's already been making, you know, four, five, six million a year. And then his qualifying offer is also uh, over $7 million. Yeah, I think it's like 7.8. I'm sorry? I think it's like 7.8 or something like that. Yeah, right around there. Right, right. So, so, and, and I, I wrote about this, you know, back when they were coming up on the extension deadline. Is cancer really going to get a multi-year offer? that is that much A, is he worth a multi-year offer that starts at that much higher than that $7.8 million? And B, is a team going to make that offer to him because maybe they don't believe in him? You know, you talked about that. We don't know what his value around the league is. But also knowing that they're going to have to overbid enough that the Jazz aren't going to want to match it. And so 
you really would have to to really get up high enough. You would probably have to bid, you know, eleven million bucks. Start something starting at eleven million bucks if you're going to dissuade the Jazz from matching. I'm not sure that another team is going to want to do that. I'm also not sure that he has the motivation to take much less than anything starting at eleven million because he can always just play it out for seven point eight million and then go through it again when he's unrestricted and he'll have more of a market and I'm sure we'll be confident that he is going to prove more in that intervening year. So I think, you know, and then the Jazz are, are probably not going to want to give him an extension starting for eight figures a year either with how unproven he is. So I think with all parties, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't believe in him necessarily, but it just might make more sense to do the qualifying offer and then come back at it again you know, a, a year later and see if he's really part of this team or maybe they will just move on for him or he'll move on for the Jets. Absolutely. I was I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you said it. I think I I think that's a totally realistic possibility. We saw a guy like Greg Monroe do that last year with the Pistons and they're similar sort of players, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would. I think Cantor is a little bit better of a shooting stroke. Maybe Monroe might have slightly more defensive potential, but uh you know, they're kind of guys who are really closer to centers on offense, but kind of not really quick enough to be fours and not good enough uh, shot blockers to be fives defensively. So, yeah, I mean, it, they are kind of hard to typecast. And Zach Lowe from Grantland wrote a nice piece earlier that players of that ilk who are good post-up players and rebounders but don't really stretch the floor or defend the basket are kind of becoming a little bit outmoded in this this uh, NBA. And maybe guys like that are, are a little more effective as bench scorers who are going to play 25 or 30 minutes rather than being you know a, a cornerstone type of piece. Do you think there's a trade market at all for Cantor if they were to try to move him uh, before this, this upcoming trade deadline? And if so, who do you think might be interested? And is there a, a legitimate potential return the Jazz should be considering there? Oh, I haven't thought about that. Um, I can't imagine that they would get a ton for him uh, because of his restricted free agency. Again, you know, are you going to want to pay this dude eight figures? You know, what, what is he really that you're – and what are his salary demands going to be? What is the qualifying offer going to be to keep him? Um, you know, I, I think that other teams aren't necessarily going to have that that much information and then you know who really needs a guy like that uh presumably you make that move if you either you're a contender or you see him as a cornerstone piece we already discussed why he's probably not a cornerstone piece um you don't want to give up too much i mean is, would you give up a late first rounder would the jazz take that i don't think the jazz would take that i think they believe he has more potential and even just simply the chance to see what he becomes might be worth more than, you know, a first round pick in the twenties in, in a year or two. So I don't particularly see that. It's I, I would have to really go through the rosters and see if there's anyone that he could help a lot, but no one comes to mind at first blush. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a tricky situation for the jazz for sure. Uh, I wanted to ask you, this is something from our cheesecake factory conversations, but you mentioned that there are a bunch of players around the league who are kind of misunderstood about how well they're playing this season. 
Um, you know, they had either bad starts and have turned out to be playing better than people thought or vice versa. Who are some of those players that I think not enough people know about how well or how poorly they're playing so far this year? Yeah, you know, it is a little bit of an insidious trend that you'll see guys have a, a first couple of, of bad weeks to the season, especially if it's a more veteran guy where you could plausibly think, all right, you know, maybe he's kind of on the downswing a little bit. And, you know, if you had those two weeks in the middle of the season, no one would really notice if you played well the rest of the time. But because it comes after an off season, we sort of have this assumption, which is true to some degree, that people have, you know, some permanent change can happen since we last saw this guy over the off season. And, and a perfect example of that is Matt Barnes. He started off the year shooting terribly. Teams were really you know, there are a few games where some smart defensive teams were just doubling off of him and totally mucking up the Clippers pick and rolls. And, but now you look at what he's doing. He actually has a, a true shooting percentage, you know, which is a metric that incorporates free throws and three pointers in a field goal percentage of 60%, which is excellent. You know, the league average is about 53%. So that's great. He's shooting over 38% now on, on threes and he's shooting 58% on twos. And he's still, you know, a pretty scrappy guy. So he's he's having as good of a year as you might have hoped that he could Matt Barnes could possibly have at age, you know, thirty four, thirty five, whatever he is. And yet, you know, there's still the conception, oh, he's been terrible, you know, he's the problem with the Clippers. No, I mean the problem with the Clippers is they have five players on the team, but he he's one of them. <laughs> or maybe or maybe six, I guess. Does Spencer Hawes count as a player? Uh, well, he hasn't so far. I think if he gets yeah. healthy, he can. Maybe he can make it seven. <laughs> Are there any teams who kind of have that same sort of thing happen? I mean, it's a it's a little less of an issue when you've got you, there's only thirty teams compared to you know four hundred and fifty players. But are there is there a team or two that you think has kind of had a at this point they're a little bit uh, perceived the wrong way, if you will? Well, I think up until maybe the last two weeks, you certainly could have looked at the Hawks because they started, I think it was like seven and six, you know, pretty close to 500 over the first 15 games. And then, you know, they've been on fire since then. But you're right, it's, it's a little harder to sneak under the radar when you have, you know, just like stark wins and losses as opposed to having to really dig into the stats to see how an individual player is doing necessarily. Uh, Portland would be another one who I think they're sort of like – I think the people are are thinking, oh well, you know, they just haven't fallen off from last year. Uh, you know, they're kind of in the mix, but they really, by pretty much just about any statistical measure you want to look at, have been right up at uh, you know among the West contenders at the top of that list, other than Golden State. So, and their defense is so much better this year. That's the thing that we really is something that needs to be talked about because that was sort of their Achilles heel about why the I thought at least they weren't going to be a part of championship contention. And now they've really gotten there. And with Willard and Aldridge and, and Wes Matthews shooting threes, they're always going to have a good offense. So I think they're now kind of a team to be feared as opposed to a team that's like, oh, well, you know, they're really just a mid-pack Western Conference team. Yeah, I agree. I think they're going under the radar just because of, I think the talent that they have and they, there wasn't that hype going into them or with them going into the season. Anyway, Nate, thank you so much for spending the time with us uh, this evening. I really appreciate it. As always, you've got some great insight. Um, give, you him can the, always, give him the Twitter handle yeah, for Nate. Follow Nate at NateDuncanNBA, and uh, your stuff is on BasketballInsiders.com, correct? 
Yes, it is. Chats at 11 Eastern on Tuesdays, and I usually have an article that drops on Tuesdays as well on a weekly basis. Perfect. So we'll check it out there every Tuesday. Nate, thanks again for joining us. All right. My pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot, Nate. Always a pleasure to have Nate on. He's he's one of our first uh, repeat guests for our longer guest segment. Yeah, and that's because we've heard good things from people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just got a tweet from Ben Whiteman um, basically saying that discussion about Ennis Cantor and the qualifying offer is, is really true. That is, it's really interesting, something that uh, you know maybe wasn't obvious at first glance, but could definitely happen with Ennis Cantor's contract situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a totally reasonable And he's right. You know, Why would Cantor want to accept a multi-year offer for a team that from a team that's less or right around that amount when he could play one more year at that amount anyway and then be unrestricted, which is like shackles off? Especially with the cap going up after mm-hmm. that season. That could be a big deal. Yeah. Anyway, we'll continue with more of this talk afterward, after the break. We're going to go around the NBA talking about uh, Josh Smith, the Detroit Pistons, Houston Rockets. We had three trades in the NBA over the last week. We're going to talk about those. And, of course, the infamous LOL Lakers segment coming up where we always laugh at the Los Angeles Lakers. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show. Andy Larson here alongside Ben Dowsett. Just wanted to give a little clarification there. Um, Casey Greer on Twitter asked us if we could trade Ennis Cantor anytime after he, you know, conceivably signed this qualifying offer. The answer is only with his consent. So in in essence, he would have a no trade clause that he could waive for the full would, year, right? For that whole year okay. after signing him. So that's just something to think about as you have Ennis Cantor qualifying offer discussions with your friends and family, which I'm sure happen all the time. Those are popular conversations <laughs> at, my, at my dinner table. Yes, but let's go around the NBA. Uh, first of all, and I think the biggest story in the NBA over the last week is just how good the Detroit Pistons have been since waving Josh Smith. So this was uh, actually since our last show, the the Pistons just straight up waved Josh Smith. You know, we're just you know we will pay legitimately all of your contract. Just just go please away. go away. It's amazing. And. Since then, the Pistons are seven and zero. And re- remember, before then, they were one of the worst teams in the NBA. They were five and twenty-three before that. Since then, undefeated. Josh Smith, cancer. I I mean, now I I have uh, I have seen some pieces by some smart folks that have gone through, and that some of it is luck. Like some of it is Brandon Jennings is is making these shots that's just impossible for him to. And Jody Meeks making. is back. Too. And Jody Meeks is back, but and that helps. Still, yeah. And, I mean, Jody Meeks isn't isn't seven wins, and one of them's against the Spurs, and <laughs> right. one of them's against they who they kill Memphis last night. Didn't yeah. they kill Memphis? Like, yeah. I mean, to I think to a point, absolutely. There's no question. If you remove, and I, I believe this was uh, on the on the Zach Lowe and Bill Simmons podcast yesterday, was uh, Zach was saying if you remove if your team's highest field goal attempt player or one of them, is shooting 35%, and you remove that player from the team, the team is going to play better. That's just that's just a thing in the NBA. Like, that's going to happen. Um, and I think we've seen that with Rudy Gay. We've seen mm-hmm. that. I mean, yeah. we've seen that a lot of times throughout the Addition NBA. Addition by subtraction, if you will. And, by the way, the Rockets, who are about to win their next, uh, about to win this game, are 4-3 and three before tonight since acquiring Josh Smith. Um, it's now going to be 5-3. and three, but, yeah. yeah. Now, of course, saying that it's all completely due to Josh and, the, and that whole deal, of course it's not. We know that's not the case. But I think there's absolutely something to removing somebody from your locker room and from the court who is just not a positive influence in either of those cases. And, I, yeah, I fully agree. I think they've... I think they made a great move, and all of a sudden we can talk about Stan Van Gundy's being a genius again. Even if, even <laughs> if, and now I'm going to say this, 
even if the deal or the way they the excuse me even if it's completely his fault that they're better now, it's just that that's the whole answer, which I think we know is not correct. But even if it he's was... He's still the GM. He still gets credit for that decision. Yeah, no, but even if it was, what I'm saying is that the way they did it, I still don't believe was correct. There are other ways you could have done it. Um, but If no one's going to trade for him, how are you going to do it? Uh, I mean, frankly, you could just bench him. You don't have to pay that money over that time. And I know that... The, the, but if you're just benching him, what's the point of... Uh, why not just waive him then? I mean, it's not like Josh Smith is a great guy to have in the locker room. True, true. I do think there would have been a market for him, trade-wise. Not a huge There wasn't. One. They tried. The, the, this was the last option for them, period. I, I've read certain things that may or may not agree with that, is all I'll say. Right. And I don't know the they true They tried, answer. yeah. I mean, Sacramento was conceivably, once upon a time, sort of interested. And then they were like, actually, no, we don't want this guy on our team. I mean, this uh, they would have traded him if they could have, right? I mean, it's just logical. Probably Probably. Definitely. And, uh, okay. Stan uh, is not a stupid guy. That's true. And uh, and I'm glad that we uh, now at this point can can go back to re- understanding that Stan Van Gundy's a genius, which is, <laughs> which is nice. I like that. The three, world is right again. Like we said, uh, three trades in the NBA over the last week. The first is just kind of a minor one. The Clippers traded Jared Cunningham to the Sixers for the rights, the draft rights of someone who will never play in the NBA. Um, he will. Uh, that basically opens up a small exception for the Clippers to essentially open up a roster spot, Which get them to sign a ten day contract and, you know, basically need some get some bench help. Mm-hmm. But I think the two most interesting deals this week were from the Cleveland Cavaliers. First, they acquired J.R. Smith, Iman Shumpert from the Knicks, an Oklahoma City first rounder. Uh in exchange, they give up Dion Waiters and send him to Oklahoma City. And a little bit of other cap fodder, I believe, was in there as well. But yeah, right. these, those are the main pieces in the deal, and it was a big one. The Knicks were involved as well, as we, as you said. Um, really interesting deal that physically broke Twitter. Actually <laughs> physically broke Twitter. The, the, like Twitter just stopped working right. for an hour straight right after that news started breaking. Um in fact, mine still isn't even back to working perfectly <laughs> yet. So you see the impact that a trade like that has. Um, no, I think you know what for and for once, I think you may have found a three-way trade that, in ways at least, was beneficial to all three teams. Yeah, I, I think if, maybe. maybe. I think Oklahoma City's yeah. yeah messed up, but yeah. you know, oh well. That's what they, that's what they do. <laughs> they they mess up trades. Yeah, that's what OKC I, I think- does. For two of those teams, it's reasonable, and for Oklahoma City, I think it was a mistake. Uh, And then the second Cavs trade is they traded two first-round picks, including the one they just received in that deal, plus a second uh, for Timofey Mozgov, the Denver center. I think that's a lot to give up for Timofey Mozgov. It's a ton. There's no question it's a ton. Now, the thing with Mozgov is that they do get him this year and next at a very affordable price, so that, that was a positive for them. And both the picks they traded are very heavily protected in terms of their lottery protections. Right, so they're going to be late. They're going to be later first-round first round picks. picks. But, hey, you know what? You know what you can get at the end of the first round? Rudy Gobert. Yeah. Somet- sometimes. But, look, the Jazz traded just a season ago basically $24 million in cap space for two first-round picks. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, I think this is the sort of deal that shows that maybe that was a little bit not – it wasn't enough in return for the Jazz to give up that much cap space. I, th- I think that could be very true. That could be right. Or you could, or one could make the flip side argument that maybe the Cavaliers are the <laughs> ones who have who have been on the wrong end, kind of. of That's this. Fair. And I, I think it kind of just speaks though to their team construct and to what's going on there. They've, you know, this is there are certain there are a lot of situations where you don't want to have win now as the only mentality in your head. But this isn't one of them. That has to be what they're thinking right now. They there's no other choice because if you don't, 
there's a realistic chance that Kevin Love walks in the offseason. And he hasn't been any, you know, all-star wonderful great shakes at the moment, but he's still Kevin Love, and the guy can still play basketball really, really well. And losing him after what you gave up for him this previous offseason, which was two consecutive number one overall picks in the NBA, which is a massive deal. Like, that's a huge deal to give up. If they lose him after one year, that's a a huge hit to their developmental process overall, and it's a huge hit to the the team they were trying to have around LeBron and to the title chances and all that. It's crazy how many first round picks the Cavs have given up I mean besides just Anthony Bennett and Andrew Wiggins they were the two that they just gave up in the Mozgov deal and then they gave up four second round picks in order to acquire the cap space in order to uh, get Timofey Mozgov legally on their team I mean mm-hmm. this is a they've basically traded their past youth and present future um in order for this team to work right now. Yeah. And if it doesn't, it's it's going to get a little bit ugly. And, you know, that's not the best way to go about things. But at the same time, you got to move forward with what you've got. And when they had the opportunity, you know, just the amazing opportunity of a LeBron James dropping into their lap this summer, right. which nobody expected to happen, you got to kind of not. And, and that's not to say that I thought they were going in the right direction before that by any means. They weren't. They've been poorly managed for a long time, including when LeBron was there. There's a reason why the guy left, you know. That's and you know, frankly, I think they're just doing what they can, and I think LeBron behind the scenes is maybe helping out a little bit with his own voice on the issue. Right. Um, and, you know, I do think Mozgov's going to make them better. His rim protection compared to any other big on their roster is a world of difference. Let's talk about two teams who are kind of struggling more than I think people thought. Uh, Spurs are 4-6 and six in their last 10. Overall, they're just 21-15. and 15. It's actually only three games in the loss column out of the playoffs. Uh, that being said, Kawhi Leonard, who honestly many people consider their best player right now, comes back either next week or the week after that. So you should see them right the ship. I mean, so long as they make the playoffs, I think they'll be fine. Uh, I think they would like to avoid that eight seed if they could. Ideally, I mean, Nobody yeah. wants to play Golden State in this first round. Yeah, Golden State is, I, I think, by far and away the best team in the league this year. Uh, and then the Kings, since Ty Corbin has taken over, uh, is 4-7, and seven, though they did kill Oklahoma City last night somehow. Yeah, and you know, Oklahoma City is another weird one. There's some weird stuff going on there. I mean, <laughs> Makes your skin crawl. <laughs> Thanks, John. Uh, they uh, Oklahoma City, they, they got to win a lot of games over the next over the last course of the year to get into that eighth spot, and then, like we said, probably get Golden State in the first round, which would really suck for them. But um, and disaster for the Kings. Still can't believe they did what they did. N- nothing to do with Ty Corbin in particular, but just a disaster to fire a coach who was getting along so well with that team. The first coach to ever reach DeMarcus Cousins in his career. Now you see DeMarcus just lazing around up and down the court again like he yeah. was before. Terrible move. Can't overstate that. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about the LOL Lakers. Yay, the LOL Lakers. So, uh... Beautiful. They deserve it. I... <laughs> So the Lakers are now 11 and 25 with the league's fourth fourth worst record. They've lost six of their last eight. Uh, blown away by the Clippers last night. On, lost by 25 points in a game that honestly wasn't even that close. Nope. Uh, and are not very good. Kobe, for example, is now three of 24 this season in the final minute of close games. Wait, that kind of sucks. Are, are you telling me that Kobe Bryant is the isn't the best clutch player to ever live, except for Michael Jordan? That is him shooting 13 percent from in those clutch situations. I don't believe you. Kobe Bryant is the best clutch player to ever play <laughs> basketball except for Michael Jordan, and no numbers will tell me otherwise. Well, that is a number. Maybe, no. The numbers the numbers never lie. Let's put it that way. Sometimes they do every now and then, but yeah, I would, I would generally agree with that. And see, the most interesting thing, and this is actually a semi-serious thing for half a moment, is with 
the with the Lakers situation that's going on, we had a very interesting comment from Jeannie Buss recently. Uh, which I, when was it? I think it was yesterday it was or the day. Friday it was Friday. Okay. Um, about how now Jimmy Buss, who's been essentially running the team recently, last April made a specific pledge that if the Lakers were not, I think the way he he, he worded it was as a if the Lakers were not a contending title team, is that isn't that what he said? Yes, we're trying to be serious, John. <laughs> <laughs> okay, basically, Jimmy said that if within three years the Lakers are not contending for NBA titles again, he would step down from his position and that he would no longer be running the Lakers, essentially. And Jeannie Buss came out on Friday and said she's going to hold him to that, which I found to be a really interesting statement, mostly because I see an extremely low chance that this team is competing for titles in three I love years. that. Just from a familial dynamic point of view, to have the sister holding the brother accountable, if you don't make the Lakers championship contenders in two years with the, the overwhelming gamut of resources they have, which essentially is nothing other than money. I'm surrounded money, by idiots. Then, yes, then... I'm going to make you leave as as your older sister. Like it's just weird. It's it's a weird dynamic the Lakers have, yeah. and as a Laker hater, it's glorious. Yeah. Now the one thing that is a little bit of a negative for us trying to make fun of the Lakers is that all they're losing in dysfunctionality lately. Plus the Pistons, who we talked about just a second ago, doing so well now has the Lakers in what would be the fourth draft position if the, uh, the fourth lottery position before right. the lottery were to be held. As we know, if they finish in the top five of the draft, they get their pick. If they finish anywhere outside of that, they have to send their pick. We would really like to see the Lakers get exactly the sixth pick and have to send that somewhere. To Phoenix. To Phoenix, exactly. Who and we it, love. At this point, unfortunately, unless some t- other teams start losing some more games, it looks like that's not going to happen. But it's close. I mean, it's there are a lot of teams with 12 and 13 wins. You look at Orlando, you look at Detroit, you look at Charlotte. I Boston mean, there are a lot too. of Boston. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of teams that could fall down. It'll be interesting to see if Kobe Bryant lets that happen. And I, I don't know. It's just so many different forces trying to go different ways with the Lakers. It's, could there be it's a anything, gigantic mess. Could there be anything better than Kobe finally putting it together for one last run of great play this year and that getting the Lakers out of their draft pick and him just leaving the lasting legacy of suckage for the next, like, six years after that? I would say that deserves the Benny Hill theme. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> That's our LOL Lakers segment. Can we stop playing the Benny Hill theme? Thank you. <laughs> as fun as that was. It was really fun. Uh I can't believe we get paid for this. This is great, right? Uh, <laughs> that's your around the NBA segment. There's as as we noted before, the NBA this year is really fun with how wide open it is. Check out the NBA on TNT or ESPN, any of your fine NBA coverage providers. Um, joining us, or actually not joining us next, but next on the segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the old school jazz, Pistol Pete. Um, I wish Pete Maravich could join us on the show. <laughs> yeah, Pete Maravich unfortunately could not be here today. Uh, as well as look at the upcoming Utah Jazz schedule next on the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. So I learned something important in the segment, by the way, Salt City Hoop Show, Andy Larson, Ben Dowsett. Ben just got an iPhone and has been teaching Siri to call him your excellence. She, oh, she, okay, she calls me your excellence and she calls me sir. She call, <laughs> one, one of those two. Um, do you want me to? Do you want me to play it? I mean, sure. Why not? Okay, let's do this. Siri, what is my name? Your sir. 
but since we are friends, I get to call you your excellence. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. <laughs> I agree. I agree. The next step is figuring out if I get to call her something, if I can get her to respond to something Slave. else, which will, of course, be Professor McGonagall, if, oh. if she does. <laughs> um, such a nerd. They, oh, no question about it. <laughs> <laughs> Um. Okay. Anyway, moving along. Let's... I I just thought that that was a insight into the world of Ben. And by the way, I've had an iPhone forever. This is just my first time having one that has Siri on it. I just got a six the other day, which okay. is an awesome phone. But uh, gotcha. I, I'm. Just, I just thought that, that was hilarious. Um. So pistol Pete a little bit. I I had an article on Salt State Hoops this week, this Monday. We're starting a series where I'm going to analyze each trade in jazz history. There are, I think, 97 trades that'll happen over the next two or three years. You're going through whatever. all 97? I'm going through all 97. Ooh, next week is Mel Counts for Cash. So, nice. Yeah, it's big time. But the first trade in jazz history is its most important, and it's when they acquired Pistol Pete Maravich. Um, and I just want to say that if you haven't watched Pistol Pete Maravich highlights on YouTube you got to get your butt to Pistol Pete highlights on YouTube. You really like, do. It's pretty crazy. He does things in 1975 that no one does in the NBA today. That Like, progress does not include Pistol Pete. Yeah, full court, underhanded outlet passes. Like, like as if he was bowling the basketball into the <laughs> air, essentially. And they're accurate, too. Yeah. Like, they're, all, they're where they're supposed to be. It's crazy. I mean, he would have uh, he scored 68 points in a game. Actually, Dick Pavetta nearly fouled him out of that game, which I think is hilarious. Wait, Dick Pavetta did foul him out of the game, didn't he? It was the fifth foul, not oh, the sixth. Nah, so, well, whatever. Close enough. Um, but he was fouled out of a game in which he scored 68 points. That was the highest at the time by a guard in NBA history. I mean, he was a remarkable player. So, check that out on YouTube, as well as checking out our article on Salt City Hoops. I got the honor of, of editing that particular piece. And it, <laughs> no, and I actually do mean that. It was a, it was a really, really fun piece to read because, the, you know, it's not every day that you get to go back. And I wasn't alive when Pistol Pete Maravich was around. So that's it's it's cool for me to kind of be able to get submerged into that world just a little bit. If you're somebody who's at all into history, definitely go check it out. A really good piece. Yeah, go down the YouTube rabbit train uh, rabbit hole or uh, the Google newspaper rabbit hole sometime if you're interested. I didn't even know that existed before I read your article. I had, I had no idea that that was a thing yeah it's insane let's go ahead and break down the jazz's next week of games before our next show there are three games and wow the schedule is difficult i mean this is i think maybe the hardest week that the jazz will face all year first up is the oklahoma city thunder at oklahoma city tomorrow night at 6 p.m it's um, the angry Oklahoma City Thunder, too, because they just got beat by Sacramento. Right, but um, does that also maybe show weakness that maybe, maybe the bit. Jazz could exploit? Maybe a little bit. I mean, I don't think the Jazz should be basically penciled into any road win at this point, um, much less against a good Oklahoma City team. Yeah, it, it's going to be really tough to win that game. And then the very next night, they got to first of all, they got to travel, and then they got to go into Houston and play the Rockets in Houston, which is... I actually think the Rockets are a worse matchup for the Jazz than the Thunder. If I had to pick the Jazz to have a better chance in either one of those games, first of all, because one of them's not on a back to back and the other is, um, and because of the matchups, I actually would pick the Jazz, or I would pick Oklahoma City. Of course, I don't think they're anything close to a favorite in either game, but uh, the Jazz have a couple teams. Houston's one, the Clippers is another, and Golden State, who, I mean, they're a bad matchup for pretty much everybody, who. Just the way the players match up, the way those teams play, I don't think the Jazz, unless the shooting for those teams is really bad, I don't think the Jazz have any chance against yeah, them. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the Thunder also are just a worse team than the the other two. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, first of all, they're 17 and 19, which obviously is heavily affected by injuries that are no longer taking as much of a toll. But they also just don't have the depth and the, the, the teamwork that... 
quite frankly, Houston and Golden State have figured out to their massive success this year. Yeah, if you could get one of those big three guys on that team, especially Durant, into a little foul trouble, maybe the Jazz could have a chance in that game. That would yeah. that would be their chance. Whereas, uh, barring fouling Harden out in the third quarter, I don't know that that's <laughs> happening for the Jazz against uh, against Houston. That being said, the Jazz have had some really improbable wins this year. It's true they've had a couple, although they've spaced them out really well. And since one of them just happened last night, I don't know if they'll if they'll be willing to do so again <laughs> quite so soon. But and you know what, they've been playing way better. We're going to see Gobert in the starting lineup again, very likely, as we said earlier. Cantor's doubtful, right? Cantor's doubtful for tomorrow. I mean, no word on his status for Saturday, but you have to say that if he's his ankle isn't better for tomorrow it's unlikely that it heals better in under 24 hours yeah until saturday so those are both gonna be tough and then worst of all they played golden state warriors again the league's best team with a 28 and 5 record they're beating teams by an average of 10 points a game far and away the best margin of any team in the league um at home at least though it's going to be a fun one for the Energy Solutions crowd. I know that. Yeah, check out, buy some tickets for the Golden State game because they they are super fun to watch. Yeah, I I, I mean, I can't think of more than it. Maybe one other team, Atlanta, that I enjoy watching more than them specifically but for their offense and things like that. And yeah, they're one of those matchups who... I I truly feel like even if everything everything goes the Jazz's way in that game, it's nothing better than like a fifty fifty shot to win the and that's <laughs> and I mean everything. I mean you foul out one of their stars and somebody goes one for twelve on the on Golden State, all that could happen and I still think the Jazz are only like I'm calling 50, 50. Rudy Gobert nine blocks, all of them against Steph Curry, our MVP candidate. That'd be fun. Jazz winning by fifty just to <laughs> show you and find 30 and let's make it realistic <laughs> and steph curry's rim percentage of 72 percent goes down to 51 percent in one game <laughs> just because of rudy gobert while we're keeping it realistic i mean that's as realistic as it comes right i think uh yeah i mean if rudy gobert versus steph curry is the ultimate immovable object versus unstoppable force We'll we'll see what happens with it. We'll see. We'll see. I want to. You know, I'm interested to see. And, and Steph has really upped his his willingness to go to the hoop this year. This is it's part of the reason he's been so awesome. Is that he's he's taken a lot of his longer mid range shots from last year, converted those into attempts where he goes to the rim, mm-hmm. which I think is just it, that's what you want. That's smart. That's what you want to do. That's what analytics tells us is the right thing to do. I'm interested to see if he challenges Rudy because we aren't see we haven't basically seen anybody challenge Rudy Gobert so that's far. That's a good point. And I'm, especially guard guards haven't even thought about it. Guys guys that have a little bulk on him have it like Hibbert was kind of took it to him a couple times in the game the other night but yeah I'm, I'm interested to see whether Steph is content to just kind of sit back and launch because I think Golden State could win that way like he doesn't yeah. have to get to the rim for them to win or whether he's just like screw it I want to challenge and just and does it anyway let's see what happens they have had like this really kind of fun uh kind of mean streak about them this year where they will just run up the score mm-hmm. on teams just to kind of show that they can do it. Yeah, and I'm 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 the reason the main reason why I say the Jazz match up so badly with a team like this is that when they run small with Dr- with Draymond Green at the 4, which I think they're going to do a ton of, the Jazz just don't quite have the personnel to play those types of guys yet. I I do think Derek is better as a 4. I've said it a million times, and I think he could actually do to maybe drop a get a little slimmer over the years so he can can guard guys like that a little bit better in the future, but right now the speed isn't quite there and those kind of matchups tend to kill them with the spacing. Let me ask you, do you think 0-3 and three is more likely or 1-2 and two over the next three games? I, I do think 0-3 and three is more likely. All of these teams have just a ton to play for right now, like That's even true. more than a team like the Bulls. The Bulls have a lot to play for in the other conference, but, the, I mean, these teams, you lose games in the West, and that's that games like this, and that's it for you. And they and I, I think there's a lot of motivation. I, I do have to project 0-3, as sad as it makes me. I, I think 1-2 and two is more likely just because of how well the Jazz have been playing, as well as just the NBA is crazy, and sometimes you win games 
games you're not supposed to. Fair. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. You've been listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Check us out, saltcityhoops.com. Thanks again for listening.